you're listening to Farm to Tabor, part two in our series with Carrie Lee Merritt, historian and author of Masterless Men, Poor Whites in Slavery in the Antebellum South. So one of the things that abolitionists argued uh, about the Antebellum South was that not only that slavery degraded labor to the enslaved themselves, but also to poor whites who, you know, were pushed out of the labor force or, or, you know, marginalized from the labor force entirely. But also, as a third prong to that, that slavery degraded the labor of slaveholders themselves because by owning slaves, they became... Um, you know, completely disconnected from labor. Many of them um, had no idea, you know, uh, much about farming at all or farming practices. A lot of that knowledge was kept within the African-American community. And you see this um, even in Reconstruction, early Reconstruction, as uh, African-Americans are working, at least for themselves, as sharecroppers or tenant farmers, um, what production looks like and and where the, the locus of power shifts. Yeah. Well, there was uh, there were a lot of really interesting incidents, kind of early on in this in the slavery era, where um, they hadn't quite figured out like where the knowledge base was yet in the slave trade. They were still thinking it was it was kind of brute force labor, um, and they're still in the process of figuring out the knowledge work end of things um, of their HR system. And uh, right. every once in a while, just some random you know beginning planter would luck across. A, an enslaved person who had actually run a cotton planting in West Africa and had had really good techniques down. Uh, you know, the Islamic world had really advanced irrigation and cultivation techniques, and a lot of West Africa was within that sphere. Um, and just indigenous to West Africa itself, a lot of really advanced horticulture like we talked about. Um, so every once in a while, a planter would luck across one of these people, and their plantation would just take off. Um, and kind of through that process, they kind of figured out, you know, where the knowledge base was and, and kind of exploited those knowledge bases in West Africa more heavily. Um, but that was really what made a lot of the early wealth and the early successful planners was just lucking across someone who was really knowledgeable on the market. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, there's been some great, uh, books on this recently from chefs, um, uh, the cooking gene specifically. Yes. Michael Twitty? Yes. Legend. Yeah, I love that that chefs are finally really getting into all of this. You know, how does agriculture, how you know, the culture um, aspect, especially getting into um, how so many Western Africans brought our Southern traditions here. Yeah, exactly. So that's been really great to recognize, and and you'll even see it again um, working in current agriculture. There's uh, the sustainable farming community. Um, what? They have some good ideas, but a lot of it is really kind of white supremacist. Like, they kind of low-key are about making agriculture white again. And that's kind of what they mean when they say sustainable some of the time. Uh, But you look at how they do uh, some of their farming techniques, and uh, you're like, this is what happens when when Anglo-Americans go unchecked. (laughs) And it's it's really ironic, too, because... Quite frankly, um, it gets to the point in, in the South, um, mm-hmm. as the Civil War it becomes a real possibility, yeah. um, and, and poor whites actually start forming labor unions and mm-hmm. saying that they're no longer willing to compete um, with enslaved labor or even mm-hmm. with free black labor, because free black labor always undercut their own wages, that yeah. um, they're no longer willing to compete with with um with blacks and, and have their, their wages mm-hmm. um, depressed. And... and Slaveholders' answer, their brilliant answer to all of this, is to come up with this um, 
this segregated labor force wherein mm-hmm. they were only going to work poor whites yeah. in the factories, in the cotton factories, and, and agriculture was going to become completely a black um, industry, only blacks working in agriculture. They wanted to just divide the labor force that way, and they thought in that way they would actually uplift whites. Right. Um, yeah, and it speaks so much to kind of what we have now, even with the whole like working class whites, and we need to bring back factories. And there's very much still to this day, very much uh, a sense of who works in factories versus in farms. Exactly. Um, again, like can't really stop comparing it to to today's migrant labor situation. Something I've found is every time you have you know kind of Anglo Americans working actual field jobs in agriculture, um, they describe it in just these apocalyptic terms, like it was hot, we were really sore, and you're like. No fucking kidding. <laughs> you know, right. that's what work is like. You know, as someone who's done, you know, my share of outdoor agricultural labor, it's really interesting because, again, they describe it in these apocalyptic terms. And to me, I mean, it was just work and it was gross and dirty, but it's just work. Um, well, and then think about what that was like, though, back in the, you know, the 19th century or even earlier, what that does to the concept of race. When you have race, racial slavery based on you know, what shade your skin is. Yeah. And you have the white woman ideal of, you know, never having her, her white skin, you know, touch the sun, basically, you know, yeah. inside under an umbrella at all costs. Yeah. Um, and and when you have working class whites out there in the fields every day, not only with red necks, but mm-hmm. sunburnt skin. Yeah. Um, part of the reason I argue that, that Americans, white Americans thought Abraham Lincoln was so ugly was that he had <laughs> very dark and wizened skin from yeah. having to work in agricultural labor as a teenager and young man. I see that, yeah. And it's funny because to this day, again, migrant laborers, um, you know, you'd think if you're working outside, you would kind of wear tank tops and shorts, but it's it's hoodies and the hood is drawn and long sleeves. And some of that is just to protect your skin from, you know, thorns and prickles and stuff. A lot of crops... Uh, if you're casually working with them in the garden, they don't mess your skin up. But if you're doing it all day, day in and day out, um, actually I worked with blueberries and they don't have thorns or anything, but they have these tiny little slivers of bark that will get stuck in your skin. And, um, there were some times when, um, you know, I would have to like submerge my hands and forearms in ice water just to like stop the itching so I could fall asleep. You know, like it didn't hurt, but it was crazy itchy. Um, Oh yeah. So if you know what you're doing, which I did not at that time, you know, you wear long sleeves. <laughs> but some of that is to kind of prevent, you know, sun exposure because, like, in that community as well, it's viewed as a negative. So they'll, they'll go all out to keep from getting a lot of sun. Right. So it's all, all the uh, differences in, in race and class kind of converge and, and align in weird different ways. Yeah. Um, trying to think um yeah so i I don't know it's just really interesting to see how knowledge work and agriculture combine because i think to this day and again um i have some criticisms of the sustainable agriculture (laughs) movement you know it's 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 considered cool to have criticisms of conventional ag but i'm like i don't think the ways that sustainable ag is trying to fix it are actually addressing the root problems which are rooted in racism um absolutely you know, again, uh, you'll see sustainable ag farmers just do really wacky stuff where it's really clear that no one with farming skills was involved in the setup of that farm. Um, the way they harvest leafy greens is my number one favorite. They do this really just like they'll use scissors or they'll use this thing that like Johnny selected seed sells it. And it's this little roto brush and you, you bend over, you know, so you got your butt up in the air. Um, and you're completely bent over and it spins and there's an electric screw attached to it and it kind of like cuts the greens into a bucket and this is the, just the dumbest thing I've ever seen. 
God bless. Um, but it's what everybody is using. Um, there is a way that um, hand lettuce harvesting is done in the professional kind of um, migrant labor driven areas. And it's actually very efficient. You don't bend over and it's done by hand. You know, we kind of think these mass lettuce fields are done with these machines. And sometimes that's the case, but a lot of it is done by hand. And no, I'm not going to tell you guys how it's done because... <laughs> Uh, you know what? That's a, that's a trade secret. Um, but the way a lot of your sustainable farms are doing it, it's very clear that they're kind of really amateur about it. Um, that, that's just really interesting to watch. Like, uh, agricultural knowledge in, doesn't have to be kind of based on your culture, but because of the way we feel about agriculture, we're like, oh, it's something you learn from your parents. And if your parents didn't do it, it's not a thing and you don't do it. And there's not a sense that we kind of go out of our comfort zone and learn things from other people. And, right. And yeah. I was, I was actually having a similar conversation with somebody the other day, thinking about the fact that America was just kind of created, you know, at least in the South, as a just a, a cash, a cash crop industry immediately. Mm -hmm. And there never really was a time um, that there was this kind of old world you know, almost uh, feudalistic, you know, devotion to craft where, mm -hmm. you know, somebody would be the town's candle maker and their son would be the candle maker, somebody would be a cooper. And then right. the craft, you know, whether it's cheese making or, or sausage making is handed down, passed down through generations and generations of perfecting that craft. Yeah. And, and, you know, we, the, the American South never really had that because everything yeah. was immediately thrown into this large scale um, you know, capitalist system. Yeah, it was pretty much industrial right away. And again, like with sustainable agriculture, it's so funny to me because they really kind of sell this impression of American agriculture as there was a time when everything was traditional and people learned things from their parents and again, generations and blah, blah, blah. Um, but you actually look at our history and there were some isolated instances where that happened for maybe 30 to 60 years at a time. And that's it. You know, that's maybe two generations. And yet we have this mythos kind of built around those 30 to 60 years like it was the norm. Um, but subsistence farming, by and large, with settlers on this continent has never really been a thing nearly as much as we think it was. It was always market-oriented. Um, I think Little House on the Prairie is a great example. Um, <laughs> you know, they're constantly, you know, the, the grandchild of the person, the people involved who's writing it is telling it like you know, their their goal was subsistence. We just want to be independent and make our own things. But you actually look at the life decisions they were making, you're like, no, Pa Ingalls was trying to run a, a Bonanza wheat farm and he was trying right. to get close to a railroad, but he also wanted to feel like he was independent, so it never worked out. You know, like he kept choosing bad locations. And um, it's been a while, but didn't they get their their land from the homestead act? They did. I, yeah. yeah, so so they, they were part of the beneficiaries of the largest governmental handout, yeah. you know, in, in United States history. Well, some of it, it was, was the mother of all entitlement programs. Right, yeah. Some of it was Homestead Act. Some of it was just straight up squatting on Indian land. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> they moved so many times. They had plenty of options to for each one. Um, but yeah, like that, uh, Prairie Fires is fantastic and highly recommended, um, especially... <laughs> Um, again, there's just this image of a certain way that American farming worked and being very traditional. And it was, that really never happened. There were a few isolated pockets that lasted for a few decades and that was it. And yet we're treating it like it was the norm. Um, yeah. So I just, I really wish there were more historians kind of talking about the role of family farms in colonialism, because we've got this folklore again of, of plantations versus family farms and their polar opposites. And I just really think they have more in common, like plantations were family farms. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they were family owned, they were estates, you know. 
anyway. Absolutely. No, absolutely. And actually, by the end of the, the antebellum period, they were talking about a return to primogenitor and, you know, mm-hmm. passing everything down to the first son and, I mean, all sorts of crazy, you know, returns to, to aristocracy. Right. Um, oh, and speaking of which, something I want to check in with you about was kind of towards the end of the, um, the pre-war period, um, there were some interesting changes going on. Number one, the price of slaves was spiking, and so people's wealth kind of shifted from it's because we grow crops. You know, it started it started out as that, but towards the end of that era, it started being more about like we own these people and they reproduce, and we have capital that is appreciating passively because of that. And they were also talking about just enslaving everybody who wasn't a planter. And I think those are two really huge trends that help us understand what was happening in and why that society felt like they had to go to war or they were going to collapse. Absolutely. I mean, they, they basically um, had an increasingly divided white society that they had to worry about uh, keeping control of and keeping, uh, as I said, they were forming these these nascent labor unions and then demanding not only you know, no competition with the enslaved, but they were actually threatening to withdraw their support for slavery altogether if something right. wasn't done to improve their lot in life, to, to get them out of cyclical poverty. Yeah. And um, and so planters basically um, devised a multifaceted plan to kind of scare them into supporting slavery and, and, yeah. and eventually secession. Um, big media campaign telling them uh, it's the most racist language you'll ever see used um, yeah. in the antebellum period was in these few years before secession, as they're trying to you know, tell poor whites and even yeoman whites that they're going to be slaughtered in this impending race war. You know that black men um, would rape their wives and daughters, and and that they would become the slaves of black people. And you know, all all rich whites could flee the South, but they would be there to mm. suffer yes. the ravages of this. I mean, it's, it's very, when you look at what's happening in the media today, I mean, it's undeniable to see links. And I, and I argue yeah. that this is the kind of racist invective that will be used in the Jim Crow period. It's right here trying to whip poor whites into, um, you know, being scared enough to support secession and, right. and fight for the Confederacy. Right, yeah. It's, it's really funny, again, you know, if you live with any historians, um, to hear folks kind of going, America's so divided now. And you're like, bitch, have you heard of Jim Crow? <laughs> right, right. As, as, as um, pessimistic as I can be about our future, it's still better than 50 or 100 or 150 years ago. So, right. you know. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I, I feel like a lot of folks are kind of selling this panic about how this is new and scary. And you're like, no, this is America all the way to the bottom. It's, it's always been like this. Um, you know, and I think it's really useful to kind of look at the ways that maybe we got out of it the first couple of times and maybe just try and stay out of it this time. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. There's, there's much to be learned and I'm so grateful for people like you, um, especially having such a a big fan base to, to get the knowledge out to people. Gosh, I hope. Yeah. Um, folks are kind of asking for book reviews and I'm like, well, let's, let's start with this podcast. (laughs) Sounds good. Um, but yeah, this was fantastic information. Um, it's just, it's good stuff all the way through. Again, I'm a third away through this book, and I feel like I've read two, and I'm, I'm really excited to actually finish it. Um, well, yeah. We'll have a lot to talk about it at the Southern Historical Association then. No. Um, so something I, I wanted to, there are a couple more things I had some questions about. Um, something that I'm kind of looking at when I'm, I'm looking at agricultural culture and just how it relates to U.S. history um, something I read once, um, let's see how to set this up. 
I was reading a book about domestic violence once, and the author said something really interesting. He was, um, I forget his name, he's the author of Why Does He Do That, you know, about abusive men's behavior. And um, he said something really interesting, which was most cultures, you know, or at least in the U.S. that I've worked with, there's domestic violence in some form or another. Um, but they'll have different approaches to it. There will be different genres. And there is a very distinctive Anglo-American style of domestic abuse. And it is very focused on thought policing, um, which is very interesting to me because I kind of grew up in that Anglo-American tradition of thought policing domestic violence. And uh, to me, I just thought that was normal. And, you know, he's like, some other cultures, they don't really care what their victims say or think as long as they keep the food or the money or the sex coming. Mm -hmm. um, so that was kind of a, an eye-opener to me. It was like, there's other ways to do this. Um, but yeah, just really interesting because you look at this antebellum culture and it's very much built on, like, they were incredibly into the thought policing. It wasn't even okay to think certain things. Um, if somebody suspected who was a planner that you weren't on their side, they would punish you. And it's really interesting to me to kind of wonder if maybe there's some connection here between Anglo-American-style domestic abuse and our slave history. I, I mean, I definitely think there is. So, I, I mean, I, I argue that there is no system of public education in the Deep South in the antebellum period, um, precisely because they realized that if they could teach poor whites to read, not only would they become discontented with their own lot in life and, and you know, be be able to understand messages from, from people, you know, not only abolitionists, but people in the Republican Party who were talking about the rights of laborers, who were talking about, you know, um, protections on the jobs and, 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 and higher wages and um, workers' rights. I mean, things really, and, and pushing for a Homestead Act, you know, pushing for free land for these people. Yeah. Um, and, and so you've got that on the one hand, um, and, um, you know, it just becomes... Uh, a very censored, heavily policed society where not only do they keep them ignorant, but um, they're constantly looking through the mail, they're going through the federal mail, mm -hmm. um, you know, looking at everything that enters the, every single book that enters the region. And if they can't deal with it from a criminal justice perspective, if they're not locking people up, then they have all these vigilante groups. Mm -hmm. You know, essentially the, the precursors, the Ku Klux Klan, who um, they're called either vigilante societies, uh, vigilance committees, Minutemen mm -hmm. groups. Yep. They're they're very similar to the slave patrols, and they're just constantly riding around the South and um, trying to catch people, both blacks and poor whites, um, who are in, um, interacting with each other or you know especially drinking together. They never want anybody to get intoxicated okay. because you know <laughs> intoxication was the first step to rebellion mm, and yeah. revolt. Um, yeah. So heavily policed that. Um, and, and just did their best to, to not only, you know, surveil all things at all times, but um, really mete out horrible punishments um, yeah. when somebody stepped out of line in a spectacle-like setting. Yeah. Um, even even when it was in a legal manner, you know, they're they're literally taking poor whites out on the courthouse steps every Monday morning or, or the first Monday of the month mm -hmm. and whipping them publicly in front of everyone else, white men and women, mm -hmm. um, uh, in order to show people, you know, to stay in their place, to, to, to toe the line and support slavery and, and take their lot in life and move on. Yeah. And it, again, the domestic violence book and just kind of like, this is how it works, just so you know, if you're in one of these situations... <laughs> this is what's happening to you. Um, and and yeah. many scholars, especially uh, Nell Painter, uh, makes this point beautifully, 
that the South is more violent. I mean, we are. We, we have more murders per capita. We are undoubtedly more violent. But it's not due to any kind of, you know, cultural um, reason, per se. Mm -hmm. It's due to the fact that we had a, an incredibly violent system of slavery. Right. Um, and then dealing with the aftermaths of slavery and trying to keep people in, you know, essentially a second degree of slavery. Yeah. The racial violence is, is absolutely inescapable. And, and even if you're a white person who has no involvement in slavery itself, if you're a poor white person, being in that kind of society constantly, I mean, it trickles down to all levels. There, there are horrible instances of wife beating, abuse, you know, child killing, basically, by yeah. poor white men. Mm -hmm. um, and when you live in that kind of a violent, violent society, I mean, it's almost like a frontier society. Yeah. Um, that's that's how your life is structured. Yeah, well, it's really interesting to me because folks kind of will characterize the South as sort of like honor-based, and I'm like, I don't, that's a really dramatic misreading of what's going on, <laughs> you know, um, it, it seems like to me anyway. Um, you know, I, I feel like the South, really, if you want to understand, understand the South, it is built on resentment and uh, like finely handcrafted resentment. And, um, you know, like when I'm, when I'm talking to farmers and, and to some extent, actually this works in California as well, because the, the growers out there are very professional, but there's a lot of water politics. And, uh, so that breeds a lot of resentment. So between the South and California, you know, um, when you're working with a farm, you know, they've never met you before. So the first thing you need to do is establish some rapport. Um, mm -hmm. like actually just kind of be a person for a minute. And I found the best way to do that is just, you know, you can kind of guess just based on the region and what they're growing, what their resentment pattern looks like. Uh, right, right. <laughs> so you just kind of start talking about some of the beefs, you know, and, and just kind of let them know that you know what's going on. Um, and then something else that I found working with growers is, you know, there actually are a lot of um, growers out there and farmers who kind of understand a little bit more about American society than than. I think we've been told farmers are supposed to, they're a little bit more woke. And um, what I find is that the farmers who are the wokest are financially the most successful um, because they have situational awareness about what their labor force is you know, going through. And so they're actually able to provide a more decent living for these folks. And so they don't have as hard a time recruiting labor. Um, right. You know, I remember. I remember going through uh, wine country, you know, in, in Portland, and yeah. and I mean outside of Portland and Oregon, and being told that the vintners there actually voted to have to to give health care to their migrant, you know, non-American workforce, and yeah. it was completely, as a person from the South, you know, completely blown away by this fact. Yeah, like every once in a while, you'll run into like a node of woke farmers, and you know it's weird because they're so much more financially successful. Um, it's like there's something to this. Um, so it, like having kind of found this and, and then also like another thing that you'll see in, in Anglo culture is, you know, there's some misogyny. Um, but at the same time, a lot of farms really rely on the women in the family to actually get the back end paperwork and payroll and sales and invoicing, like to actually run the business. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's all the women running the business and the guys are out there driving tractors, which is a whole fascinating subgenre of gendered work that we can dive into at some point. But so they, they really rely on women to actually run the business. And the farms, they recognize that that's a thing and that they're actually doing work instead of like, quote unquote, just helping out in the office, are more financially successful because they realize, hey, there's someone who understands the business and let's let her make some decisions. Um, and they make better decisions as a farm and better business decisions and they're more successful. So oh, I love that. Yeah, somebody yeah. needs to write that up soon. Working on it. <laughs> um, 
So, so kind of what I found is the woke of the farm, the more financially successful they are. So as someone who works with farms, I kind of, it's kind of a professional obligation to do some training just in food safety in general, um, and how that interacts with record keeping and your personnel decisions. Um, so you always kind of start off like just kind of, you know, just talking about the, the topics in the region and, and again, just getting into that pattern of resentment that they've got. And, um, and then, then once you've got that spotlight of resentment going, then you kind of like turn it onto maybe some stuff that they should be worried about, but aren't, um, you know, like, uh, you know, worker recruiting, worker retention, and then like, who's making the business decisions, you know, like just, you, you kind of put some, drop some crumbs into the hat. You can't make people's decisions for them, but you can kind of, um, you can drop some pointers and hopefully that, that goes somewhere. Um, and if it doesn't, you know, then their business isn't going to do fine. So that's whatever. Um, but that's been really kind of interesting and kind of encouraging is that the Wooker farms are more successful. And I just really wish that sustainable ag would talk about that, but they're more busy talking about families. Yay. Um, well, there, there are some, some historians, especially, um, in the working in the late 19th century, um, looking at, um, basically black collective farming and mm-hmm. how, um, successful that was that, you know, that a community, of African Americans would pool what little money they had together and buy, you know, a piece of land and slowly, you know, farm it and be able to buy a little bit more and a little mm-hmm. bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, and and even in the '60s, you know, in the '50s and '60s, um, in, in states like Mississippi and Alabama, yeah. you'd have these little community farms um, yeah. that did quite well. Um, yeah. That, that people could almost pull away from society altogether um, in protest of civil rights and have these little working, sustainable communities. Right. I, I need to look me up some of that, so I will follow up with you and get those book titles. Um, but that's kind of something that stood out to me is, like, at any time throughout history, any time a society has tried family farming, um, it's, it's failed because it's inherently an unstable situation. Like, a family farm is just too small to have the stability that you need to ride out bad years. It's just mm-hmm. too small. Right, you have to have some kind of safety net to get through drought or famine, yeah. you know, whatever, whatever comes along, yeah. you've got to have something. Yeah, so I mean, like, the the farms that are successful either tend to be quote-unquote corporate farms, which is just family farms they've got big enough to actually be stable, and they hire a lot of people, and now we call them corporate. Um, you know, or they're, again, native nations, so they're run by a native nation. You know, they have a lot of communal land, and they just run that um, pretty professionally, as opposed to, like, a... a you know, family farm situation where you kind of have to work with whoever your next generation is. Um, the Amish, I think insofar as the Amish are really successful, I don't think it's because of the horse-drawn buggy thing. I think it's just because they're good at business and poor resources. And then you also have like the, the Hutterite communities who are kind of similar Anabaptist communities, but they don't really, um, they're okay with technology. So they have big tractors and it's all communally owned. And I think a lot of those, I just think that in order to farm successfully, you have to have more people involved than what a family farm can realistically do. Mm-hmm. And I just don't think that's something American culture has ever acknowledged because we're so busy falling over ourselves about how family farming was the shit. <laughs> you know? Right. Um, right. You know, because, so, few, yeah. so few people actually ever lived that I yeah. mean, to any real degree yeah. without some sort of yeah safety net in some way. I mean, you'll see all these poor whites in the antebellum period. Um, it, it is very much like a patron-client relationship. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're walking around begging for, for corn and meat, you know, yeah. when, when it gets cold. They're, they're yeah. uh, you know, just perpetually indebted um, to these big planters to, mm-hmm. to supply them with the basics of living. 
Yeah. Well, and a lot of the reason that family farms tend to fail is number one, size, and then number two, you know, so there's the stability and not being able to make it through bad years. And then there's also, you can't hold up to pressure from the outside because there's just not enough of you and not enough financial power. Um, mm-hmm. And I think watching what happened is described really clearly in your book, uh, two smaller white farmers um, as planters aggressively took over their land is a really great testament to that. Um, yeah. And, and just that like the Homestead Act was a real threat to planters because having, you know, small farms around them uh, didn't work out for their business model and their, their social engineering model. And so they were very aggressively taking over small family farms and these small family farms couldn't do anything about it because they were too small. Um, right. And you look at who the founding fathers were, you know, this whole Jeffersonian ideal and, um, you know, you look at Jefferson, like he was not a small family farmer. He did not really believe in that. Exactly. Right. And so you kind of, I mean, the, the guys who founded the Republic, they read a lot of Roman texts. And I think ancient Rome is one of the classic case studies of why family farming doesn't work. It's because these giant patrician estates ate them alive. And, you know, again, these guys all had a classical education. They read all this stuff and they knew exactly how it was going to work. And so I'm like, were they just negligent or were they actually setting small family farmers up? I'm still trying to figure that out. That's a really good question. Yeah, yeah. I think about it sometimes and I, I haven't fully decided, but, um, yeah. yeah, I think there's always been a kind of patrician. Yeah. Let's keep the dependency there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, definitely. I think there's something to that argument. Yeah. That's, that's a whole thing I want to delve into. And again, like I, I just wish there were historians kind of engaging more with the family farming history. Um, because I, I think there's a, it's a very hegeographical history, you know, it's just like, Oh, it was so great. And I feel like the folks who do do history on it, do it because they just love family farms and they want to talk about it. And they're not interested in actually looking at how it worked or who set up that system and who benefited from it. And maybe they thought, you know, it would just make life easy for patricians to have a garbage disposal to throw poor whites into that. Then they could, you know, take over their land once they improved it. I don't know. No one looks at that. Another avenue open, graduate students and and people working on second book topics. Listen up. (laughs) That's it from Farm to Tabor this episode. You can find Carrie Lee Merritt on Twitter, and I cannot recommend her book enough. It's called Masterless Men. Follow this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and check us out on Patreon for bonus content, including bloopers and miscellaneous hot takes from this episode. Thanks for listening.